Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We are taping today on Thursday, November 21st at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Caitlin Owens of Axios. Hi. And my KHN colleague, Julie Appleby. Hello. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, a note about our schedule. Next week is Thanksgiving. So we will tape on Tuesday and we will post the podcast that same day. So another week without a ruling on the Texas ACA case, at least not so far, but still more than enough news to talk about. I thought we would start with politics this week, kind of surprisingly little health discussion in the Democratic debate, although there was a bit of a spat between the single payer folks, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, I wrote the damn Bill Sanders, and the incremental folks led by Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. Still, I kind of wonder why they aren't contrasting more with Republicans. And yes, I know it's a primary and they're looking for Democratic votes. But in these debates, they're presumably talking to more than just Democrats, right? Right. Yeah. The debates are so, in my opinion, I'm, you know, we've now had the same debate on health care five times with a little more information each time. At least I think it's five debates. But it is. five um, debates. Yeah. It's just kind of funny because like, OK, we get it. Like some of you want private insurance and some of you don't. But, you know, I guess to be fair, that's the only topic to discuss. But it is kind of weird that they don't at least talk about like, you know, we're the party of health care. We do this, this, and this. There's not a word about the Affordable Care Act. I don't. Did it even come up last night? I don't think so. And it, that is interesting, especially given the results of the midterms. Uh, that was a big driver. People really wanted to keep their plans. So I don't know why there wasn't more discussion of that. I think there are two main reasons why this is happening. One is that I think they all want to talk about their big ideas, talk about what they want to do. They're selling themselves as visionaries, as political craftsmen. And so it's kind of boring to get up there and say, like, I'm just going to make sure that the things we already have stay the way they are. I feel like that's just not the kind of message that really galvanizes voters. But I also think a lot of it has to do with the questions that they're being asked. Mm. They're being asked, how are you different from your competitor? Can you defend this uh, opinion that you have that is somewhat controversial? And so that framing, the whole idea of a debate is like, where do we disagree? How are we going to work out these differences? How are we going to take these big ideas and try to make them into something that the party and the electorate can get comfortable with and can get behind? And so it makes sense that they're focusing, I think, on these points of contrast. You know, the debate started with questions about impeachment. And there, there's like almost no difference between the candidates at all. They're all like, yes, this is very alarming. Yes, like we would vote to impeach the president probably. And I just think a whole debate like that where it's like, let's find things that we all agree on is probably not that revealing to voters and not a good way for these candidates to try to give the public a sense of their vision and their style. Although I do, I mean, I feel like the whole theme of this Democratic 20 people running for, for president still on the Democratic side is uh, everyone says, I'm the person who can beat President Trump. I mean, that seems to be the, everybody's biggest selling point is I'm the person that can beat Trump. And yet they're not really sort of 
contrasting it. As Julie said, you know, these are the things that won them back, that won Democrats back the House in 2018, and they're not talking about them, which just strikes me as I say this after every debate. So I'll probably say this after the, the debate next month. Well, too. I think we're also in a little bit of a strange political moment as far as health policy goes. So the 2018 election came right on the heels of a really aggressive and sustained effort by Republicans in Congress to try to repeal and replace big parts of the Affordable Care Act. And so that had just happened. It was something that they did. And I think there was it was a really great moment for Democrats to stand up and say, they want to do this thing. Don't worry. We're going to protect you from these changes that you might not like. And it was a really powerful message that I think helped them win a lot of seats in the election. But it's been a while since 2017 now. If these people were, were still talking about what the Republicans tried to do you know, several years ago and that they have sh- shown no interest in doing since then, I think it would feel a little weird. On the other hand, like we all know that this Texas v. Azar case could be decided any day now and that it looks like, based on the oral argument, that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals may rule to overturn all or much of the Affordable Care Act. And I think the moment that happens, the, the switch is going to flip and we're going to get much more into a debate in the political arena that is like the 2018 debate, which is, you know, the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, are going to protect it, care about pre-existing conditions, want to prevent mass chaos. And the Republicans, I think, are going to feel much more pressure to articulate what their vision is for a world where the Affordable Care Act no longer exists. And just to build on that, you know, I agree. And I think that politicians this often speak to people's emotions. Um, and I feel like, yes, the public fear about the Affordable Care Act going away is dissipated now just because it's like out of sight, out of mind, even though, as we know, the threat is still very real. Um, but on the other hand, people are really upset about their health care costs. Um, so I think that the Democrats are focusing on their different plans for how they're going to address uh, expensive health care for people. And so um, and they do have different ideas about how to do that. And, you know, I think between the if you're reading between the lines, like the moderate saying, like, we're not going to take away your private insurance is like a little bit of like we're going to keep the status quo. Um, but, yeah, they're they're definitely not drawing that direct line. But also I think it's because. The Affordable Care Act is not like evoking strong emotions from anyone right now. Well, that's a good segue because I want to talk about Elizabeth Warren's other health plan. Mm. I, I, I did see – I saw some coverage that suggested that this was, you know, her stepping back from Medicare for all. Um, I, she did say – I mean, we, you know, talked to her staff before the, the big one came out that said there will be another plan for the transition that will come out in a couple of weeks. So they did exactly what they said they were going to do. It wasn't like this was in reaction to that. Although I'd say they undersold it. <laughs> yeah, that, that that may be true. Well, so Elizabeth Warren then puts out this plan that says, we're, we'll do Medicare for all a little bit later in my first term. But first, we're going to do these transitional things. But these transitional things are a lot, right? I just think it's hilarious. I think she now has two health care plans. Like, she has the most aggressive public option on the table. It gets to the point where anyone can buy it and it's free health care. But supposedly, like, I don't know, like, will, we, will it never get to that point because Medicare for all will be implemented? I don't know. But, like, she totally has this backup health care plan that stands alone. Yeah, let, let's go through. It's like it's all children. It's everybody under age 18. Everybody over 50 can buy into Medicare and anyone with family income under twice the poverty line. I guess it's free for those. It's free for those. Anyone can buy it. And eventually, over time, the cost-sharing requirements and the premium requirements are reduced to the point where they're free for everybody. So there's this weird thing. I mean, this is so in the weeds, but the people over 50 actually can choose between two public option plans. They can either buy into traditional Medicare Or they can buy a public option plan where everything's free. The reason she's done it this way is that she can do it, This, you know, the other sort of 
I was going to say unspoken, but this is a spoken argument among the Democrats. Or will they get rid of the filibuster, the legislative filibuster in the Senate, so they could pass something this big with only 51 votes? But of course, what she's saying for her backup plan, I guess, her transition plan, is that she can pass this with through reconciliation, through the budget process, where they only need 51 votes now. Um, but it would have to be, it couldn't add to the deficit, so it would have to be some pretty big taxes to make all this stuff free. And, you know, I usually don't think it's worth writing about process. Um, at this point in the primary, but I just, I had to for this, just because it's like, I mean, she's in such a tenuous position where she's trying to like make herself sound like a pragmatic Medicare for all purist, which is like a really difficult position to have. But this plan, you just look at it and it's like, when you're thinking about reality, and I wrote this this week, like this is an extremely aggressive healthcare plan. Like, her transition plan. Biden's plan is an extremely aggressive healthcare plan. Right, and hers is more aggressive than his. And the political capital that it would take to pass this plan, whether you do it through reconciliation or whatever way, like, it's just kind of, to me, I think it's a pipe dream to think that you're going to turn around two years later and pass Medicare for all. Um, You know, and I was, I quoted Larry Levitt, who works for the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, saying, he's like, you know, I think more realistically, that becomes a re-election campaign. Like, now we're going to pass Medicare for all. And, you know, this public option is written to work in case Medicare all doesn't work. Like, again, like, when it becomes a free public option over time, like, that's not over two years, right? Like, that's a long-term plan. So I think there are two... Like different frames you can think about for this decision to release this particular plan at this time. And I think both of them are true. And I actually, when I was writing about it, we, me and my colleagues like had this debate about like, what's the lead? Which of these things is important? So one thing that it is, is that she is taking a step back from her prior commitments to Medicare for all, right? She said that she was going to do Medicare for all. She gave detailed financing details. And now she's saying, oh, we'll do that later. First, we're going to do this other thing. So it's sort of a step back. But she also said, and I think this is the thing that stuck out to me and that maybe has gotten a little less attention. She said for the first time, we're going to pass this big health care bill, as Caitlin said, big, ambitious, more than what anyone else is talking about, very expensive, probably a lot of political capital. We're going to do this through the reconciliation process in the first 100 days of my administration. And so she's really told us for the first time that health care is not just something she has a plan for, but something that she sees as a very high priority thing that she wants to expend political capital on, that she wants to do early in her administration. And of course, all of us who have covered these debates in the past understand that when you commit to doing something like that, it means it's going to crowd out other policy priorities. Elizabeth Warren is a candidate who has a lot of plans for a lot of things. And I think until this plan came out, all of us sort of thought healthcare was something that she had ideas about, but maybe was not the front burner issue for her. And I think now she's really transitioned to saying, no, healthcare is really important. It's one of the first things I'm going to do, maybe at the expense of other things that I care about. That struck me, too, that she said in the first 100 days, she was going to move 130 million people (laughs) into this Medicare plan. And that seems very ambitious. Remember that the Republicans, when they came in in 2017, were going to overturn the, the Affordable Care Act by the end of January. Didn't even get to the House floor until the middle of March. Um, Which time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The first time. But, I, yeah. you know, everything, yeah, yeah. everything takes longer than you think. Well, we know a little bit more about what voters think, thanks to the latest poll from our colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Healthcare is still Democrats' top issue, according to the poll. And Democrats and Democrats Leaning Democratic leaning independents trust Bernie Sanders most when it comes to health care. Yet at the same time, significant majorities in this same poll actually prefer a public option to Bernie's Medicare for All plan. So what is up with that? 
They like so Bernie, but they don't like his plan? to this thing that I just said. I mean, I, who knows? I haven't interviewed all these people. But I think it has to do with this priorities issue. So they have a policy that they prefer to another policy. But they also are saying healthcare is the thing that I really care about. And what Bernie Sanders says over and over and over again is this is my number one issue. He said last night on the debate stage, I'm going to introduce my Medicare for All bill on the first day of my administration. I think he is a candidate whose whole candidacy in some ways is wrapped up in health care as the primary issue, who is constantly telling us that he cares about it, that it's a moral issue for him, that it's his number one public policy priority. He's going to do it on day one. And so I think if you're a Democratic voter and you care a lot about health care, you're concerned about your costs and you want a president who's going to deal with this issue, he is giving you a lot of signals that he will do it. Even if you don't necessarily prefer the option that he's doing, I think his sense of commitment makes people feel like he really means it. Whereas some of these other candidates, they have a plan, sure, but maybe they have other things that are more important to them. That's I don't know. That's just a theory, but it's one way of maybe squaring those two contradictory. Pieces I have of data. I have a much more pedestrian theory, which is that I think it's at this point kind of about name recognition. <laughs> and when you say healthcare, which candidate? I mean, it's it's related. That which candidate do you think of when you say healthcare? You think of Bernie. Maybe there's a sophisticated. Oh, he might get elected and he won't be able to do Medicare for all, and then we'll end up with a public option kind of thing. But I think it's I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think people think that deeply about it. I think you know when you sort of look at the would you rather have less change but make things better or more change that might be scary, they tend to go for less change that might make things better. So, But it does. It On paper, it looks a little bit weird. Well, and I'm always kind of amazed by this gap, by how much people care about health care and how much they pay attention to any kind of detail on it. Um, and, you know, I think we have a very recent example on this in Republicans repeal and replace slogan. Like, I mean, they had every branch of government. They won elections based on saying they're going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And then when push came to shove, like, and people actually thought what that meant and saw that policy written out, like, it had, what, 25 percent approval, if that? Like, no one really liked it, like, except for those 25 percent of people, which is a very low number in today's political environment. So I just am constantly amazed by, again, how emotional and, like, it drives politics. Healthcare does, and it always has, but... um. Not the details. <laughs> yeah, the details are hard. All right. Well, let us move on to something that's happening in the here and now. The Trump administration has finalized its price transparency rule for hospitals and proposed a new rule aimed at requiring insurers to inform patients what their total out-of-pocket spending could be for specific medical interventions. Uh, before we get into the specifics, let's talk about the premise. The idea here is that if consumers had a better idea of what things might actually cost, they could do more comparison shopping, and that would help bring down cost, uh, bring down prices from providers because now they'll be competing for patients. But, Margo, that's not how it always works, right? I think there's actually a secondary goal of this policy, which once this data is available and public and machine readable, those are all requirements in these rules, it means that lots of other people can suck up the data and analyze it. So I think the expectation is not that like me, an individual who needs a knee replacement, is going to go to each individual hospital website and, you know, try to guess what codes I'm going to need and, uh, you know, figure out all of these prices. I think the expectation is, is that a, some third-party app developer is going to make some beautiful tool for me. But more importantly, my employer who is purchasing health insurance is going to be able to look under the hood at what the insurers are offering them and try to understand the pricing and be able to exert more leverage and get better packages. And so there's this idea that this transparency is going to empower the purchasers, whether they're individual health consumers like me or big health consumers like employers. And 
help them bargain down the price and sort of name and shame some of the hospitals with these, you know, $1,000 Band-Aid kind of prices. Which we're already doing, but <laughs> more systematically. Uh, but there is like this interesting uh, industrial organization economics literature that looks at what happens when you have price transparency in these markets. And this is like one of my favorite things. Uh, this so is so why I wanted you here this week. <laughs> bear with me. But the classic study of this actually happened in Denmark in the 1990s, and it had to do with uh, regulation of the concrete market. I've learned a lot about the difference between cement and concrete. So concrete is the stuff that like comes in the truck, and they pour it out, and they make things. And so concrete, you can't travel very far with it. Um, and it's really important for all different kinds of construction. So the Danish government said these companies that sell concrete are going to have to make public the prices that they charge contractors. Uh, and the goal was that that transparency would lead to more competition and a lowering of concrete prices. But what actually happened is because concrete trucks can't drive that far, you really only have a couple of them in any one market. And once they saw what their competitors were getting, they stopped giving the same kind of discounts because they didn't want to be shown as having this low price. And so everyone basically, it's not that they colluded, but they all were able to kind of inch up their prices together and know that no one else was cheating. And that led to, in Denmark in the 1990s, an average increase in price of concrete of 20%. And so there is a concern that even though we are in a different country, in a different decade, in a completely different industry, there is a concern by some economists that this kind of price transparency could lead to similar outcomes because there are a lot of markets where, just like concrete, you know, healthcare is pretty local. People are only going to go drive so far to get to a hospital. So you think about a healthcare market as like a relatively small geography. And there are a lot of geographies like that where there are only one or two or three hospital systems. And if each of them can see what all of their competitors are doing, they may have an easier time all raising their prices in, con in concert, or they may have a disincentive to offer sort of secret discounts to certain insurers, to certain customers. So there is a concern that this plan could backfire and it could actually lead to higher prices. There are many people who do not like this idea. The Senate Help Committee, which is sort of uh, the key committee of jurisdiction on this area, has made T-shirts that say healthcare is not like Danish concrete, and I have one of these T-shirts which I love. That's amazing. Um, so there's a robust that is debate the ultimate about this. nerd T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. So I could go the other way. It really could. I mean, I'm thinking about California when the California Public Employees Retirement System started looking at the cost of hip and knee. Uh, replacement. And they started a different type of thing, but they said, we'll pay X amount toward this. And if, if you, the employee, wants to go and get a more expensive hip replacement, you'll pay the difference. And they did see um, they set a benchmark sort of price, and then and then below that you get your coverage for free. Otherwise, you pay more. So costs did go down, but it wasn't so much that people chose the lower cost place is that the higher cost facilities lowered their prices to meet the benchmark. So it's a slightly different, but it was another one of these transparency things. And let and let's back up a little bit. This comes after we already have this information out there under the Affordable Care Act and some new regs from the Trump administration that required list prices to be made public. But list prices are not that helpful, right? They're what hospitals would like to charge that few people pay. And what this new rule like list does, prices for mattresses. Right, yeah. I mean who pays that, right? Or cars. So so this requires hospitals by twenty twenty one to post their actual negotiated charges. So it's gonna be real interesting as as Margo was saying, I think 
a key player will be the employers, and they're going to look and say, what kind of deal are my insurers getting me at these various hospitals? And hey, why is that hospital so much more? They'll have more of that information in a more systematic way, but it's still going to be very overwhelming for your average consumer. So there may or may not be tools developed and things like that. And that's where the, there's a companion role that's going to require insurers to kind of develop <laughs> this tool where you and I could sit down and say, gee, I need that knee replacement. How much is it going to cost me? Um, and find out ahead of time. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this idea and kind of revolutionary about it in its own way is that the fact that we're reaching to Denmark in the 1990s <laughs> to the to the ready-made concrete market is really a sign that we don't know what this is going to do. You know, there are theories, there are these kind of economic analogies that various people make, but this is really a brand new policy that there is not a lot of precedent for in the United States, and it could, I think, have effects in either direction. I think probably it will not have big effects in either direction. We don't really have to worry about healthcare prices rising by 30% in most places. And we probably aren't going to see huge reductions in healthcare prices uh, that have been promised by some of the advisors who have recommended this policy to the Trump administration. Uh, the only state where we really have anything like this in the United States now is New Hampshire, which ha- publishes a really good uh, consumer-facing tool that tells you the negotiated prices for like the most common shoppable services. And the scholarship there shows that, like, prices for some of these services have come down, like, 1% or 2% on average. Is this even going to happen? I mean, as soon as the, the rules came out, I got – immediately my inbox filled up with, with the, the emails from people. The hospitals and insurers already say they're going to go – we'll see you in court, basically. Exactly. It, this is going to get challenged. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And then will people use it? That's the other question um, in New Hampshire and other places. Do people really actually even use this? And most, uh, many of the studies show that consumers don't generally look up prices even when they have that opportunity. Right. That so could change, though. Building that on change. that, but I did think on the insurance rule, you know, I was I was actually going to say that all the evidence shows that even when you give consumers to- tools to shop around, they don't unless you add an incentive for them to shop around. Mm-hmm. So Or a disincentive, like you'll have to pay the, the difference. If- right. Some kind of you know, behavior modification, carrot or stick. Um, and actually, you know, I think the evidence is even that sticks work better. In the this proposed rule, there is a segment in there that I haven't looked too deeply into, but it encourages insurers to develop incentives for people to use these shopping tools. And I think that could be kind of an underappreciated part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of like there's a big question mark about how that will play out, I think. But then also, I think that just one overarching theme here that I keep coming back to is we don't know how it's going to play out. There's a lot of conflicting ideas about it, but the fact that the industry hates it so much and sees it as such a threat, I mean, the industry usually is not threatened by things that it thinks is going to make it money. So for whatever that's worth, you know, I feel like that is something to keep in the back of all of our heads. If they hate it, it must be good for the consumer. Although, but interestingly, both sides, like you often on these things, if you think it's going to raise prices, then you usually have the insurers screaming. If you think it's going to lower prices, then usually you have the providers screaming. And this one seems to have them really screaming in unison. Well, then there's the cynics that think that, like, you know, insurance companies aren't that great about cost control either, right? So if you can see that they're not doing their job very well, that could backfire on them. Um, That could lead to a few more employers trying this idea of direct direct contracting or maybe firing their third-party administrator and hiring somebody else who might get them a better deal. But who knows? I mean, those are still very small movements and very difficult to do. But this will, if it ever goes into effect, uh, provide a lot more information for those kinds of efforts, too, where they go directly to a hospital and say, hey, um, here's what we're willing to pay. And we're basing that off of what's being paid in the neighborhood. And they'll have that data. Can I just tie this back to Elizabeth Warren briefly? Uh, <laughs> so one thing we didn't talk about in her plan is in addition to her 
first bill and her second bill, she also has this really aggressive regulatory agenda Mm -hmm. that she puts in her plan where she says, like, here's all the stuff I'm going to do on day one. And let's not get into that now. But what but, I was, but a lot of stuff that she can do without yeah, that, Congress. Or that she thinks she can do. And one thing that I think is interesting about that is that we have seen with the Trump administration an extremely aggressive regulatory agenda, sort of almost a total disregard for what the courts might think. And we've seen policy after policy, you know, new, creative, aggressive policies that have been achieved through regulation because Congress is not really able to do anything on health care that have gotten knocked down by the courts. So the conscience rule for religious health care providers just last week. We've seen, you know, th- so several things in uh, women's health, um, Medicaid work requirements. There's just, you know, there's a really broad gamut of the big putting ones. drug prices in ads. Yeah, right? putting drug prices right. in ads. There's a ton of stuff that they've done that has not held up in court. And they seem sort of a little bit unconcerned about it. Like they're just trying to push the envelope as far as they can and see how well they can do in the courts. Obviously, uh, President Trump is appointing a lot of judges who maybe are more sympathetic to his administration's policies. Maybe that will pay off in the long run. But I think you should see this policy as part of that. This is a real stretch. Uh, They're using the Medicare outpatient payment rule as the hook for this. Like, this is not something that Congress explicitly has permitted, that they have asked for. This is something that the Trump administration wants to do because they think it's good policy, but they can't get it through Congress. And so they're trying to do it through regulation. And there will be a court fight about this. And I guess I just would say, if Elizabeth Warren is president, I think she also had some ideas, some real kind of push the envelope regulatory ideas. And it seems like we're moving into this universe in which because it is so hard to achieve things in Congress on health care to get the kind of consensus to do big policy, I think more and more things are going to be pushed through the regulatory process and more and more of them are going to be decided in the courts. Well, that's the perfect segue to our last topic, which is Medicaid. Um, uh, there are a, a lot of things going on. And as you mentioned, some of it is the federal government trying to push states to do things and some of it is states trying to push things themselves. So I want to start with Tennessee. As we have discussed here before, Tennessee is a state that's the furthest along in cons- considering turning its Medicaid program into a block grant where the state would get a lump sum of money from Washington rather than open-ended funding. But in exchange, the state would have more freedom to run its own program, sort of free of some of the federal rules and regulations. Uh, In fact, the state sent its plan to Washington on Wednesday, so it is now here. But meanwhile, the federal government withdrew what was effectively its invitation to states to try this. So does anybody have any idea what was up with that? Was it to make it easier for Tennessee to do its block grant? Or are they going to come out with something else? Have we have we heard anything about this? I haven't seen anything explaining this other than just pointing out that, like, that's pretty bad it. timing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And again, I think that this goes back to what Margot was just saying. This Medicaid block grant, it is not at all clear that this is legal. Exactly what Margot was just saying. This is kind of pushing the regulatory envelope of what the federal government can allow states to do. Right. So I have no idea what's going on with that in terms of like this regulation and the timing of all of it. But I think the bottom line is just because Tennessee wants to convert its Medicaid funding into a block grant does not mean that that is going to happen. And it's going to be a really interesting fight regardless of what reg the Trump administration puts out or what guidance. Because, again, it's not at all clear that Congress has given anyone the authority to do this. One more Medicaid story that we 
we've talked about a lot is work requirements. There are a couple of updates there, too. Kentucky was one of the first states to try to require Medicaid recipients to prove that they worked or volunteered for a specific number of hours in order to keep their health insurance. Now Kentucky is officially getting a new Democratic governor. There was some doubt, even though he had appeared to win on election night. Uh, In fact, the new governor is the son of the governor who expanded Medicaid in the first place in Kentucky. So Kentucky's work requirement, which was on hold due to a court action, going away, yes? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that seems pretty clear at this point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But in the meantime, Wisconsin, which also elected a new Democratic governor a year ago, uh, was told by the Republican legislature uh, that he could not get rid of the work requirement that the previous Republican governor had passed. Um, Its implementation is now delayed until early next year. It was supposed to start November 1st. And Indiana, which was previously the only state that was enforcing its work requirement, has suspended that uh, because of a pending lawsuit. So are we looking at the end of work requirements here, or is this one more issue that we think is going to get resolved by the Supreme Court at some point? I think it's going to have to work its way through the courts. Um, it was interesting, you know, just as all of these states that had work requirements have basically withdrawn or postponed them, we had Seema Verma, the administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid services uh, speaking to the Medicaid directors recently last week. Last week. And, you know, she gave this speech where she was basically like, go do it. Like, these stupid judges are getting in our way. And, you know, I'm committed to helping you achieve the things that you think are going to be the best for your state and your population. So there is a weird disconnect where it seems like the administration is still really open to these proposals. I think they will continue to approve them as they show up. I think there are probably a dwindling number of states that are asking for this at this point. But the states in the meantime, I think, are facing a combination of legal challenges that are difficult to litigate and also some operational challenges. You know, we saw both in Arkansas and in New Hampshire and I guess now in Indiana, some concerns that maybe this is going to be harder to do than was anticipated. It's and just they- harder for people to report. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, I think that the idea is very much alive and I think there's a lot of energy behind it, but it's just sort of on the ground. It seems to have really stopped. Uh, If it gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says that work requirements are okay, I would imagine that that could be a moment where we would see more activity. But until then, I don't know. All right. Well, I'm sure we will come back to this. Um, So that is the news for the week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Caitlin, why don't you go first this week? So the story I chose is called The Most Remote Emergency Room, Life and Death in Rural America. It's in the Washington Post and was by Eli Saslow. It was posted last weekend. Um, And it's essentially about this telehealth company that is in South Dakota, and it it provides doctors and specialists and all kinds of basically um, just remote care for rural communities. So basically what happens is, like, these rural communities often don't have an ER doctor or specialist on staff, and so these people in this South Dakota telehealth center are on the screen helping these nurses and physicians assistants who don't have that much experience do sometimes very complex medical procedures. Um, You know, they have cameras that will zoom in on the operation and just like from this person watching on the camera in South Dakota, they'll be advising these nurses and physicians assistants on what to do. So, you know, this really just to me drove home how serious our rural health crisis is and just the lack of providers. I mean, it's crazy that I think it was like 170 hospitals, 70-something hospitals this telehealth hub serves. And, I mean, this is what we're resorting to, right? Like, this is how bad the provider shortage is. And meanwhile, 
people still need, especially emergency care. Um, and, you know, these are life or death situations for a lot of these patients. So, um, you know, it was just kind of a, uh, a wild piece on one of the solutions that we have today. Margo. Uh, I wanted to recommend a piece from David Armstrong of STAT and ProPublica, Inside Purdue Pharma's Media Playbook, How It Planted the Opioid Anti-Story. And it's sort of this historical look using court records and other new documents of how Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, uh, was able to get messages in the media and in the minds of doctors sort of counteracting narratives that this was a dangerous drug that had addiction potential. And the piece that was really interesting to me is David really explains how they co-opted certain influential voices, including uh, this woman, Sally Sadel, who is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, who I think is often quoted by journalists and talked to by journalists, and who indeed, according to this article, wrote an essay that that appeared on the front cover of the New York Times health section several years ago. They gave a lot of money to AEI, and she coordinated closely a lot of her coverage with their executives and their media team. And it's, I think it's a reminder, a sort of sobering reminder to me that a lot of uh, experts who seem like they are independent may have more industry ties than we know. Julie? I picked a piece that's in a similar theme, actually, looking at um, the, it's a story out of the Washington Post by Lena Sun from the 15th, and the headline is, Majority of Anti-Vaccine Ads on Facebook Were Funded by Two Groups. And it talks about how, you know, you might think that a lot of these ads about vaccines come from sort of grassroots movement or local neighborhood groups or or coalitions of parents, that type of thing. But it's actually most of the ads were from the World Mercury Project, which is headed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and a California-based organization called Stop Mandatory Vaccination. So they bought 54% of these ads. And I think this comes at a time when we are all interested in what is being put out there on social media and who's behind it. And any time you can reveal a little bit more uh, information about that, I think is very helpful. So I enjoyed that. Piece. Mine is by Dan Goldberg at Politico, and it's called The Healthcare System Isn't Ready to Replace Aging Caregivers. And as much as I worry about long-term care as a younger boomer, this is about what's going to happen to basically the first generation of developmentally disabled adults who grew up at home rather than in institutions. Uh, most states have very long wait lists for services, even as caregivers reach their 70s or 80s. And it is a very scary prospect and a very good story. You should read it. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Julie underscore Appleby. At Sanger Katz. At Caitlin and Owens. We'll be back in your feed next week on Tuesday, remember. In the meantime, be healthy.